is nature free. A lot of the time when I'm introducing the topic of race or gender uh, into the outdoors, whether talking with climbers or skydivers, um, some of the feedback um, is negative, right? People want to know, like, why are you bringing race and gender into this? Why are you always talking about race? Race has nothing to do with nature. Nature is free, right? Nature isn't one color or another. And I think that's like kind of an easy... um, it's like a knee-jerk reaction for people, and it's kind of an easy path to go down. Um, but I think, I think it's completely wrong. Like nature isn't free, just like nature um, is political. That was Danielle Williams, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 110. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me. The podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. I'm so glad you're joining me today. This episode is part of season 13, which to be honest, feels totally wild. (laughs) Have we really made 13 full seasons? Apparently, yes, yes, we have. And with each new season, I'm more in awe and more grateful than ever for the way that my guests are willing to show up and to be real about their messy, imperfect lives. I'm also super grateful for you, for listening, for taking two minutes to leave an iTunes review. Seriously, this is such a huge help in spreading the word and helping new people find us. And of course, I'm grateful for those of you who support and fund the show on Patreon. This is truly a community-funded podcast now, and in 2018, you can look forward to five new seasons. That's the plan, five full new seasons in 2018, and they will be more honest than ever before. I would also love the chance in 2018 to meet you in person. Um, My hope is to do 10 small, intimate, and fun Real Talk Live events. I did the first two um, in August and September of 2017 in London and in Portland, and I am hopefully heading to Boston, Seattle, Los Angeles, Chicago, D.C., and more, and you can find details and grab a ticket at NicoleAntoinette.com slash events if you are interested in doing this Real Talk thing in person and becoming friends in real life. That would be so much fun. In the meantime, I have a wonderful guest to introduce you to today, but in case you're new to the show, I wanted to first take a second and just quickly explain what we do here. So at the heart of it, my guests and I are committed really to just one simple, powerful thing, and that's telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. No one has a magic bullet, 10-day, six-step life hack plan for anything at all. I am a recovering self-help addict. That's my sort of like joking but not so joking (laughs) description of myself, and I'm so over that approach, and I bet that you are too. That's probably why you're here. So that kind of thing is not what the show is about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into meaningful topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, race racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and just about everything in between. This is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects and, warning, often using adult language, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way, even when it's uncomfortable. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. (laughs) So with this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener-funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight-episode season. 
The show is and will always be free. But if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope that you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. You might have heard me say this before, but I seriously do believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world that we want to live in. And when you help to fund this show, that's a vote. You're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. And when you support this show, you're just saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic at all should be off-limits due to fear or shame. This is a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And as a thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series, where I share my real life in real time. And you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for more real talk live events. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Danielle Williams. Danielle is the founder of the social media platform Melanin Basecamp and a co-founder of Team Black Star Skydivers. Both organizations promote diversity in outdoor adventure sports and highlight talented adventure athletes of color. She's also a former trail runner and a disabled skydiver with over 600 jumps. Danielle graduated from Harvard in 2008 and has spent the last nine years in the U.S. Army with combat deployments in Iraq and the Philippines. The Army threw her out of her first airplane in 2006, and she's been in love with adventure sports ever since. Her skydiving team, Team Black Star, was founded in 2014 and has since grown from six African-American parachutists to a diverse group of 240 skydivers in six countries. Most recently, Danielle partnered with Brown Girls Climb on Project Diversify, the first ever video collaboration showcasing women of color in adventure sports. In this episode, Danielle tells the story of why she joined the military and what it's been like being a woman in a male-dominated space. We talk about her first time skydiving and why she loves the sport so much, even though she's scared of heights and isn't at all an adventure junkie. And she shares her thoughts on managing fear and on mental toughness. She also shares the origin story of Melanin Basecamp, why she started it, what the mission is, and why it's so crucial that everyone play a role in diversifying the outdoors. I've personally learned a ton from Danielle since I first started following her on Instagram, and it was such a delightful honor to have this conversation and to have her on the show, and I really hope that you enjoy it too. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are good to go. Danielle, welcome to the show. Thank you. Tell me how you spent the first hour of your day today. What's your real life like? <laughs> okay. Um, I am in the military and I actually, cool fact, I live at a hospital where I'm undergoing medical treatment. So the first hour of my day was slowly getting up. Um, I'm in a wheelchair, so I had to roll out, make a pot of coffee, kind of relax, take my time getting ready. And then I went off to the hospital for a medical appointment. I don't know what I thought you were going to say, but it definitely wasn't that. Now I'm like, I have a thousand (laughs) follow-up questions. Oh, man. Um, How long have you been living there? I've been living here, um, wow, almost a year since January of 2017. 
Wow. Okay. What's it like to live in a hospital? Um, like it's not something I, I thought I would be doing, um, in my thirties, not even a couple years ago, not even like six months ago. Um, but it's not too bad. Um, I'm here a part of what we call the wounded warrior program. And it's a program for, um, military and combat veterans who have some sort of disabling condition or a long-term, um, medical illness that requires specialty treatment. Um, so I actually moved here from North Carolina, um, just to receive treatment for my illness. And so it's kind of like an opportunity for me to get really good care, uh, here in Maryland. Yeah. Cause I, I thought I remember reading that you were in North Carolina. Yeah. Yep. I've been in North Carolina for five years, but I moved here in January. Um, And that's kind of like a long story, but I can give you the short version. Yeah, totally. Okay. About a year and a half ago, I was living my life as a military officer and enjoying um, my job, which took me to a lot of different countries overseas. And unfortunately, I got really sick um, when I was living and working abroad. And I came back to the U.S. and I thought, you know, I had recovered fully and I thought everything was good. Um, But after a while, I noticed I was developing conditions like I had numbness in my legs and I couldn't feel my feet, um, you know, issues with my heart and uh, a lot of other things going on with my joints and muscles. And I really didn't know what was causing it. And my doctors at the time were equally stumped. No one really knew what was going on. Um, So it took me a long time, but eventually I got referred to uh, Walter Reed National Military. National Military Medical Center for care. And I was diagnosed with rheumatic fever. And I've had a couple follow-on illnesses that were resu- were a result of the rheumatic fever. So it's kind of been like a long medical journey that I never expected to go through. But um, now that I'm here, I'm excited that I finally have a diagnosis and that I'm getting really good care. Mm-hmm. Is this so I, I mean, I don't know anything about that illness at all. So this is probably going to be a dumb question, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. Is it a is it a chronic illness? That it's you're going to work to manage it? Is it something that gets cured? Like what does the sort of treatment process or look like for that? That's a really good question. Um, it's an acute illness. And uh, once the acute illness goes away, sometimes you end up with chronic conditions. Um, like in small children, sometimes it affects their heart. With grown-ups, you can end up with a movement disorder like the one I have. It's called a post-streptococcal movement disorder. And it means that sometimes I have difficulty talking. Uh, a lot of the times I have trouble walking. Um, I get involuntary movements. Um, so it's kind of been like, yeah, not your typical medical illness, Um but yeah, so what I have right now that was the result of the rheumatic fever is called a, a rheumatic fever-related movement disorder. And then I have like numbness in my legs as well. So it's been great to be at a much larger medical center where I can get long-term rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. What's your sort of emotional evolution been like through this process? Because it's you sound incredibly upbeat and positive, and um, I'm curious if that was always the case. No, I'm I'm glad you asked that because I think when it first happened, I had like a lot of confusion and I was really upset and just kind of struggling to process my emotions. Um, And like as time has gone by and, you know, there's a lot more distance between when I first got sick and now, I think like my emotions have definitely shifted, Um, but they've run the gamut too. Like I've, I've had 
like feeling sad, right? And like feeling depressed, maybe not clinically, but just kind of struggling with those feelings. But I've also had like a lot of anger. And now like, I think it runs more towards humor, right? I'm trying to look at this in a positive way, like, hey, I'm getting really good care. And it was a long journey, but I feel like, you know, things are finally looking up. Um, so I can approach it with a lot more humor than I did at the beginning, just to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that it's it's important to talk about that kind of stuff too, because I think that we are often, it doesn't have to be with illness, but with anything maybe that's unexpected or that's, you know, painful or upsetting or, you know, whatever, it's, we're so quick to, you know, we'll look on the bright side or be positive or like, it's, it's okay to be really angry, right? Or to yeah. be sad or, and that it, the emotions don't always go in a linear fashion. It's not like you arrive at this place and then you're never going to feel angry again, right? And I think those sometimes expectations that we have of each other are not helpful. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because you're right. Sometimes you have to give yourself permission to feel things um, because maybe your friends or family won't always give you permission to feel that way just because society is kind of like taught us, you know, this is how you should be. You know, if you have a disability, you should be really positive because you're an inspiration. And you may be, but you may also be dealing with like really strong feelings with negative emotions. And you're absolutely right. It's important to give yourself time and space to just kind of process that. And um, so I'm glad you brought that up. Tell me the story of joining the military. What led to that for you? Okay. Um, I've been in the Army for nine years. So, ooh, that kind of goes way back. I was born into an Army family. So both of my parents were in the military. They met and, like, dated and got married when they were um, stationed at Fort Carson, Colorado, together. Um, So after they got married, they had four kids. And three out of the four kids ended up going into the Army and it's kind of funny because it's not something they ever pressured us to do, but I also never really considered doing anything different. I always knew from the time I was a little girl that when I grew up, I was going to be in the army, just like my mom and dad. And and that's what I did. And like, I have no regrets. Um, like it hasn't always been easy, but um, like I'm grateful for the opportunity. Um, so to kind of rewind a little bit, um, throughout high school, I didn't do junior Um, Reserve Officer Training Corps, also known as JRTC. Um, But my sister did, and I was always kind of around that environment where my friends um, were also like Army brats. That's kind of the term we have for ourselves. Or they were Navy brats or Air Force, and we always kind of like knew that this is what we were going to do with our life. So I went to college, and I went to a regular four-year college, Um, But my sister and then I have a twin brother as well. They both went to the military academy, which is my father's alma mater. Um, So again, like I never really, I never really got away from like the traditions. I always grew up with army traditions and like that sense of camaraderie and duty, honor, country. And I I loved it. Like people talk about drinking the Kool-Aid, I drink it. Like that's, (laughs) that's totally my family's like thing, you know? And it's kind of funny because when I talk to people who have come into the army, especially since 9-11, I talk to some of these really young guys and, and girls and I get inspired because when you when you talk to someone who maybe hasn't come from a military household and you ask them, why did you join the army? The answer you get is definitely like, I wanted to serve my country. And like, that's really inspiring. Um, and for me, I would, I would say that like, it was partly wanting to serve my country, but it was also partly that's just who we are. Like we're people who join the army and that's what we do. And I'm not ashamed of that. Like that's kind of like my flag and that's what I'm flying. Like that's just what we do in our family. So it's, yeah. And that's kind of been really important to me. 
So when you said that you grew up with army traditions, what do you mean by that? Um, wow. There are a lot of them for little kids. Um, one thing like we always talk about, right. When you get a bunch of army brats together and they're kind of reminiscing and going over like memories from when they were younger. One of my first memories of growing up in the army was when I went to the movie theater on base and base is kind of like the word for an army, uh, like where the army units are located. So we would go to the movie theater on base and before they played the movies, they would play the national anthem and everyone would stand up and like have their hand over their heart. And we would watch a video that accompanies the national anthem. And I loved it. Like that's like one of the fond memories I have of of being a kid of that video playing and, and standing with my hand over my heart. And it was funny because it was like in the nineties and they hadn't like really updated the video that frequently or that recently so there's like one black guy one black soldier in the video and we'd always be like hey that's a black guy (laughs) that was like I don't know a really good memory I have of of being a little kid on an army base but there are a lot of other traditions too Um, even now we play of the base where I'm located we play taps in the evening Um, so every evening around sundown you'll hear like a very distinctive uh, I think it's a bugle call. I I could be wrong, though. And uh, they'll lower the flag. And wherever you are on base, if you hear that, um, if you hear taps and you're outside, you'll stop what you're doing. And if you're a civilian, civilian, you'll put your hand over your heart. Or if you're military, you might, like, salute. You'll stand at the position of attention and you'll um, render honors to the flag. So for me, like, that's just kind of a part of being being in the military, being like in that community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. I'm really curious to know, especially because you did grow up in a military family. So when you yourself took that path, it wasn't really foreign to you. But was there anything that did surprise you or that the reality wound up being different than either your sort of fantasy or expectation? Yeah. um, Wow. That's a good question. Let me think. I think like everything, kind of everything was different and not always like bad or good, but just different from when you're a kid on the outside looking in um, to being an adult kind of like doing the damn thing. Like it's just going to be different. So I think, um, yeah, huh? That's a really good question. Trying to think of one thing in particular to pull out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If there's anything that really surprised you. Yeah. That really kind of resonated. Um, it's hard cause like my mind, just the way that my mind works, I'm like automatically going to the negative and I'm trying to like reel my mind back in. Like, don't do it. <laughs> no, I mean, you can share a negative thing. We know that that does not encompass your entire experience. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Um, yeah. Okay. So neutral thing. Uh, my father was not a combat veteran. He was a veteran, but he didn't deploy, um, like to a combat zone. But my grandpa was a combat veteran from, he went to Vietnam and flew helicopters there. It's kind of interesting. Like, so sharing my combat experiences, it's not something that I could necessarily talk to my mom or dad about, um, even though they both served. So that's kind of like one difference. And I think if anything, like, hmm, I think if anything, going to combat kind of created a stronger bond with my brother and with my sister because like my sister and I, we literally high-fived in and out of Iraq. So the day I flew into Iraq, she was leaving. Um, 
and we like were in a similar area. And then I got back from Iraq and maybe a year, less than a year later, my brother deployed to Afghanistan. So that's like, that's a big difference, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think having, having family members that I could talk to has been really important because like that does change you good, bad, or otherwise it just kind of like having that experience is like very, um, it kind of shapes and influences the rest of your life, um, Mm -hmm. for, for better, for worse. So like, yeah, that's one big difference. And then I think just being a woman in the military. Yeah. I wanted to hear about that too, for sure. Yeah. I, yeah, I can't really avoid that. Like, okay. I can't relate to my father because he's not a woman in the military. He never had that experience. My mom did, but interestingly, she didn't talk about it. Not really. And she was a nurse in the army nursing corps, um, back during a time when that was still kind of a newer thing. And, and I'm sure like all of her experiences weren't easy, but it's not something she talked a whole lot about. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really interesting because you'll hear kind of the official line from women in the military, which is we're all green suitors and we all kind of have the same experience and there's no difference between men or women. Um, and then like you'll get a lot of army or Navy women together drinking and kind of relaxing and getting to know each other or whatever. And then a different story will kind of come out. Um, and that's not, it's not a bad thing. I think you just get two different versions of, of reality. And it's important to have that other version because that's what we're aspiring to, right? We're aspiring to a military that doesn't um, make decisions based off of race or gender or sexual identity. That's our goal, right? Um, so it's important to tell stories to ourselves about what we aspire to be. And I admire that about the military. And I really talk about that even in my work um, now as a diversity advocate within the outdoor community. Like we have to tell those stories and we have to have those goals. Um, but yeah, like I'm not going to say it was easy 100% of the time being a woman in uniform. But I, I do value the bonds that I form with other you know, military women and and that's not something I would give up for the world. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Hopefully I wasn't dodging your question. No, 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 not at all. That makes sense. I actually, it's it's interesting. I don't know why this would surprise me, but what you just shared about the importance of sort of telling ourselves, not avoiding the truth, but telling ourselves the stories that are inspirational, right? Like this is the ideal. This is where we want the compass to point to. I think yeah. you're right. I think there's a lot of power in that. And I also think, I think it's a both and. I think you can do that and also realistically tackle the harder things that are going on, right? Which I think is what you're yeah. saying, that it's not like, let's pretend everything's perfect and put our heads in the sand because that certainly doesn't <laughs> get us closer to the ideal, right? But yeah, yeah. I th- no, I, I think, I think that that's, I think, yeah, I, I, total, I totally get what you're saying. And I think that's a, an optimistic perspective. Like I, I like hearing that. I don't know. It makes me feel more optimistic. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Would you say on more of like a tactical level that you have learned anything? I mean, I know that you have, but so something specific that you've learned about being a woman navigating a historically predominantly male space? Because I know that that doesn't exist just in the military, right? And that's something that yeah. a lot of, you know, uh, women struggle with. Um, okay, so the question is like, what advice I would give? Or- yeah, yeah, or just anything that comes to mind about that. You know, if you were talking to, let's say, you know, a young woman who had apprehension about entering, you know, any type of predominantly male industry or environment. Okay, yeah, that's a really good question. I think 
I can only think of one piece of advice, and it's wish it's one that I wish I had gotten when I first came into the military, um, which is to deliberately be very intentional about identifying mentors. Like you can't you can't exist and be successful in predominantly male spaces without a mentor. It's just not going to happen. And I think when I first came in, um, maybe I was a little cocky. I don't know. Like. I was an athlete. I'm like, I got this, you know, and what I don't got, I can just kind of not really worry about or, you know, not emphasize. I'll just emphasize on my strengths and I can, I can do this on my own. And I think part of that was like, not so much fear, but part of that was, you know, I'm already worried about not fitting in. I just need to keep my head down, you know, shine where I can shine and somehow it'll all work out. And like, honey, that's not how it works. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would really encourage women of any color who are trying to be successful and trying to, um, yeah, to work in predominantly male spaces, you have to, from day one, identify and, and be delivered about seeking out mentorship. Um, and, you know, that works for the outdoor community as well. And for those of us, especially for women of color, if you're coming from a background where you don't naturally have a network, that's all the more important because that's how everything gets done. Um, nothing is a meritocracy, right? Because I have friends who are amazing adventure athletes, right? Whether they're skydivers or climbers or hikers. And just because they're an amazing adventure athlete doesn't mean that they're going to be well-connected to brands or have a brand ambassadorship or kind of be getting their due, right? Like, that's just not how it works. So I do like to give practical advice. And I think, like, identifying a mentor and being delivered about building your network is just such an important goal. Like it can't be overestimated. And I think that's more important than um, worrying about imposter syndrome or more important than worrying about like, am I good enough? Like that is secondary to, can I be successful by the strength or on account of the strength of my network and on account of the strength of the mentors that I've, you know, I've, I've identified and I've, you know, been deliberate about going after. Mm-hmm. So that would be my advice. I think that's brilliant advice that touches on something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, not in the, in the lens of a male dominated industry, but in the lens of doing creative work alone, right? Like I work, obviously, you're another person I'm speaking to you now, but in general, like I work from home alone, right? And I have for a really long time. And that it's so much growth and I don't know, advancement happens when you're in a network of, I find particularly really supportive women or just like supportive people, mentors, like someone who's, you know, maybe three steps ahead of you. And then someone who's maybe 25 steps ahead of you. There's so much to be learned there. And for so long, I think, I don't know if it was an ego thing for me, maybe that I'm just like, I can do this all on my own. You know, I really related to when you were, when you were saying that, that, <laughs> and I have recently realized, nope, need like a mastermind group, need to do that, need to, yeah. you know, and that that's, that's an unbelievable strength and not a weakness. It's not, you can't do it on your own it's wow look at how much we can do for each other and like support each other through like some kind of you know sisterhood community network situation yeah definitely very very true I'd love to hear the story of your first skydiving experience (laughs) okay um yeah huh okay so I actually I started jumping in 2006 but I'm going to tell you about my first skydive, which wasn't until 2011. Okay. Um, I had just gotten back from Iraq like the previous summer, and it was my birthday in May 2011. And I don't know, like 
I'm not really an adrenaline junkie type of person. Like people who know me would never, ever describe me as that, like even now. Um, but I just wanted to try a skydive. I don't know what got into me, but I thought this would be cool. It's my birthday. I think I was turning 25 or something. Um, and I just wanted to do it. But I couldn't find anyone to go with me. So I almost didn't go. But at the last minute, I found a friend who would uh, come with me. And we drove, I think, like two and a half hours from where I lived in Clarksville, Tennessee, to Elizabethtown, Kentucky. And yeah, let me think. It was like a little four-person plane and at like a little hangar, just kind of in the middle of nowhere, maybe a municipal airport. And I was really, really nervous. I'm not going to lie. I was incredibly nervous. And at that point, like I had already jumped out of a plane for the army, but it's completely different. Like in the army, you don't have a choice. There are like 20 people in front of you and 20 people behind you. You grab like your static line, which is a piece of cord that connects um, your parachute to the plane and it pulls your parachute out of the backpack you wear for you. So you grab your static line and you just kind of go forward when the jump master tells you to go. So the kind of the choice is left out of that, right? So this is going to be the first time that I decided to do it on my own. And um, yeah, so we took off and we were going to 10,000 feet and it was just me and my tandem instructor and then this older gentleman, and I didn't know this guy, and I didn't really know like what he was doing. Was he riding along? I had no idea. But as we got closer to 10,000 feet, I'm looking down on my wrist, and I have uh, what they call an altimeter, and it measures your distance above ground level. So I'm watching the altimeter. I know we're getting close. And uh, as we get closer, my tandem instructor straps me to him, so we're connected. I'm like, okay, I got this. Even if I don't got it, it's kind of too late to turn back. I already paid them my money. I'm going to do this one way or the other. And the door opens. So the door opens, and um, the gentleman who is across from us, he starts to put on his gear. Like, he's got his goggles on. Uh, he's checking his parachute. It looks good to him. I have no idea because I've never seen it before. He's got his helmet on. And then the last thing he says to us before he disappears at the door is, which way is the drop zone? And I'm like, what? Like, who is this guy? I, I didn't know who he was. I thought maybe he was an instructor. And uh, so he asks the question, and my instructor points the direction of the drop zone, like the general direction, and the guy just hops out of the plane. Oh, my God. I know, right? I was like, is what? he gonna like is he gonna survive? Like what is going on right now? This cannot be correct. This has gotta be dangerous. And uh yeah, after that, you know, you you go to the side of the aircraft, you dangle your feet out. I'm like, why do my feet have to be out? Like I'm the one who's nervous about this. Can't his feet be out? And you know, we push off from the aircraft and all my expectations in that moment just kind of fell away. Because I had like so much fear and anxiety built up. I had no idea what skydiving was going to be like. And then come to find out, it feels like you're floating. Like there's a lot of air going past you, you know, so you have to deal with that. But it feels really peaceful. And I wasn't expecting that. So we hmm. did our skydive. And he opened the parachute at some point, and now we're floating and coming down in the ground in gentle spirals. And we land, and my face is just like a really big smile. I had a big afro at the time, and that was all crazy looking. But we get down to the ground, and I'm like, this is amazing. Like, this exceeded all of my expectations. 
and like my fear had just fallen away at that point. At that point, I'm also regretting that I didn't get video because <laughs> if you don't have video, did it really happen? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and the funny thing is like after that experience, the one thing that really stuck with me was the gentleman in the plane. And again, I'm like, who is he? Like, is he a professional? I didn't know anything about skydiving at that point in time. So come to find out later when through just, um, I don't know, a fortunate experience, I ran into a friend of a friend of a friend who's a professional skydiver, or not a professional skydiver. He was a, what we call a fun jumper. So um, just a normal person like you or me, who instead of going bowling on the weekend, they go skydiving. And so I talked to that guy and like, I was asking him all of my questions that I didn't get to ask that weekend. And he explained, no, that guy is just an experienced jumper. Like he's someone who jumps, you know, when he feels like it on the weekend. And that's kind of normal. If you're a new jumper and you're traveling to a drop zone, you may not know where the drop zone is located from 10,000 feet in the air. You ask somebody to spot you or to point it out. And that just kind of blew my mind. So I was like, hey, can I do that? Like, is that a thing? And he's like, sure, there's a course you can take, you'll get certified, and then you can get your license, and then you can skydive for fun. And that's how I became a skydiver. It's so funny to hear you talk about not being an adrenaline junkie and still pursuing this. Cause like those, that's like two plus two equals unicorn, like that equation. <laughs> like I am also not an adrenaline junkie. I went skydiving once when I was 18, just as like a bucket list item. I yeah. like promptly threw up as soon as I landed and yeah. went to Popeyes, ate a lot of biscuits to settle my stomach, threw up again. I was like, I'm never doing this again. In my life. Oh, no. <laughs> um, but anyway, I am definitely not an adrenaline junkie. So it's so interesting to hear you self-describe the same way and yet you've now done how many dives like how many jumps I've done 600 okay just over. so <laughs> what <laughs> how does that so how does a person who doesn't really like I don't know identify that way or feel like it's really all about the adrenaline for you like why then why do it yeah that's a really good question um hmm I like to tell people, you know, if you're really into skydiving just for the adrenaline, you could probably get the same adrenaline rush going to an amusement park every Mm -hmm. weekend. Um, But that's just kind of like not where I'm at. Like people who know me still wouldn't describe me as an adrenaline junkie. I'm scared of heights and that hasn't changed. And I know that sounds kind of funny, but like... Would I go climbing? Probably not, because I have a legitimate fear of heights, yeah, and me it's too. not something. <laughs> yeah, it's not something I could easily conquer. Um, but I don't know how to describe it. Like skydiving is just, at least for me personally, it's just different. Um, and the community. Let me tell you about the community. The community is amazing. Like so many kind and compassionate people, and I just wasn't really expecting that. Like the only references I had culturally for skydiving were like from old movies. And, you know, there are always a bunch of older guys and like the big Elvis type jumpsuits. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I don't know nothing about that. I don't even think black people do that. Um, but it turns out they do. And I just wasn't really expecting such a warm, open community. And that's probably the reason why I stuck with it because otherwise, again, like there are other ways to get a very like similar adrenaline rush and probably cheaper, but I, I stay for the community and mm-hmm. I like the fact that I can go to a drop zone on any given day and I can hang out with people from the four-year-old drop zone kids who are just playing on the playground to my friend who's 80, I think 86 now, 
who hasn't been a skydiver since the Korean War. And I just like that range of people. Like, I don't know any other activity except maybe bowling where you, you have that. Like, your family just has such a range and breadth and depth to it. And it doesn't matter if you, you know, are someone who makes a lot of money and has a lot of um, disposable income. Or if you're just there for a season using the money that you, you know, saved up from, you know, whatever job you do seasonally, it doesn't really matter. Like we're all part of the same family. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that we're perfect. That doesn't mean that we don't have issues we need to work on. Cause that's like another thing I talk about. Um, But like for me, like that has just been, that's just been a really big part of my, my skydiving life. And I, I definitely do it for the community, for the camaraderie, for the, the sense of belonging. Um, and I like to tell people, it's kind of like Wednesday night bowling, except instead of bowling, you just come jump out of airplanes. And it's the same <laughs> yeah, feel. Yeah, that's and the it, same. Re- it really is. And, you know, for bowling, maybe you get jackets with like sequins because that's your thing. We do the same thing. Yeah, no, I mean, that that totally makes sense. And I can see for sure why that would be appealing. I don't know that I could get over my fear of heights. But so I guess that brings up another question. So you're afraid of heights. You're not, you know, super adrenaline junkie person. So what helps you sort of feel the fear or if there's ever been self doubt and do it anyway? Like, what is your, I don't know, maybe inner dialogue look like leading up to and during a jump? I'm so curious about the inner, like your inner world with skydiving. Yeah. Hmm. I think um, when I first started out, I was really scared of the door of the aircraft. And that was like a really big thing for me. Um, You have to, in order to like advance and get your certification and get your license, you have to like overcome your fear of the door. I mean, you definitely have to let go or your skydive won't even start. So that was like something I had to deal with. Um, And I don't, I don't know if it was like one thing or one person or something like somebody like told me to help me overcome that fear. And I don't think I really did overcome it. I think like time just kind of wore it down a lot to where, to where I'm less afraid. But even now, like, you know, I have my, the aircraft that I'm comfortable with because I jump them every weekend and then I'll, I'll jump a new I'm sorry, I'll jump out of a new aircraft and I just feel really scared. Mm-hmm. And it's not something I communicate to people, but you can kind of tell, like, I'm tense, I'm not relaxed. I'm like, I don't like this, I don't like this. I don't know. Like, it's, yeah, so fear doesn't go away completely. And if it did, you might become complacent. So I think, like, managing fear is definitely a big part of our sport. And sometimes it's irrational fear, but sometimes it's completely rational fear, like, a new aircraft. I don't know where the camera step is. The camera step is um, like a little ledge on the outside of the aircraft door. And we're talking about the jump door in the back. So it's on the back left side of the aircraft. Um, if you are from the pilot's perspective looking forward. Um, yeah. So things like that, right? If I'm not familiar with it, then I guess fear is not a completely irrational response to something that you're not familiar with. But as I become more familiar with um, things, whether it's a new aircraft or jumping with new people, I don't know, or um, maybe really trying to master an, a new technique in free fall that I really want to get it. And I'm, I'm fearful that I'll make a mistake or I'm fearful that I'll ruin the dive and then people will be mad at me, which they never are. But, you know, it's just something that I'm dealing with internally. So I think fear, um, I don't think fear ever goes away completely. And I think that's okay. Um, as far as like getting through it, I think for me, like 
because I'm not a big adrenaline junkie and I like things that are familiar, right? So I try to get as much information as I can. And the part I didn't share before I did my first skydive, like we have a website that catalogs all the incident reports and like things that have gone wrong and accidents and skydiving for maybe the past 10 or 20 years. And I went through and I read the whole thing. That sounds really cheerful. (laughs) (laughs) But that's just me. Like, I know, like, I can be a big scaredy cat. Like, I'm just being honest. Like, Mm -hmm. that is my personality. So instead of, like, telling myself, oh, no, you have to just get over that and just be better, be stronger, be, like, less afraid, I'm like, well, if I read this, I think I'll feel a little bit better because, you know, even if that's not a rational explanation, in my head, I'll feel better. Mm -hmm. So I I read it and I felt better. And like, sometimes that's just my approach. Like I want to get to know my gear. I want to get to know the aircraft that I'm jumping out of. I try to get to know the people um, that I'm jumping out with because, you know, that is definitely a factor. You want to jump with people who are safe or safety conscious. Um, Yeah. So for me, knowledge is like my friend. Mm -hmm. For other people, knowledge is no, like that's the enemy. Like they don't want too much knowledge because it takes away from the purpose, which is to have fun, or it might make them anxious. Um, so I think everyone is just different and everyone has like a different approach. Um, so yeah. Yeah, no, I can totally relate to that. I also love knowledge and research. For me, I find that I have to pull back at some point because there's, you know, a certain amount of knowledge that I can acquire about something that's new or scary or unfamiliar that's helpful. And then at a certain point, it's just procrastinating or it's too much, right? Like you can't, like these, just to your point, the, the fear lessens through experience. We want yeah. the answer to be that that's not the case, but you know, that it's, I think about this, what I was thinking about when you were talking is for me as a new person to the outdoors, new to the world of long distance hiking, I was and still am terrified of sleeping alone outside, right? And that yeah. was both of the long hikes that I have done were solo and like very solo, not solo and you meet a lot of friends along the way. And, you know, it was just alone, alone. And I noticed this year when I hiked the Arizona Trail, my, you know, laying there in the dark, something's definitely going to try to eat my face. Oh my God, I'm going to (laughs) die. Fear really did lessen over the 800 miles that it would get to the point the last couple of nights where, you know, it would be dark. And like you said, you don't get complacent because some fear is still healthy, but I would hear, you know, an animal walking around outside my tent and I would have that moment of, okay, it doesn't really sound that heavy. It's probably a deer. Whereas, you know, five weeks prior to that, it would have been, oh my God, I'm going to die for sure. Like these are my last three minutes on earth. Something's going (laughs) to eat me, you know, but it's like the, it happens over and over. And each night you, you know, you get more experience, you get more skills, you realize that it's going to be fine. You learn the difference with different things sound like, and this, it sounds so silly, even as I'm saying it, people are listening like, well, duh, that's, that's what experience does. But it was really impactful for me to have that firsthand to say, oh, right. The only way to get over this fear is to do the thing like exposure therapy, right? Over and over yeah. again. Oh, that's a great word. Yeah, I agree. So you mentioned before um, the the advice of finding mentors you, when you're getting into something. I would love to hear about an early mentor or teacher of yours when it comes to skydiving. What did you learn from the more experienced folks around you when you were starting out? Yeah, okay. Um When I started out, I was jumping a lot in Alabama and in Florida, and I was like at a very family-run, family-oriented drop zone where most of the people skydiving with me were 
retiree, so over the age of 50. And I was just like very young, well, not very young, but I was a 25 something or whatever um, black girl from North Carolina. And like, they didn't know me, they didn't know anything about my family, but they were still very open and very welcoming. And they taught me all of the basics about skydiving. And like, that was really important for me. Um, when you talk to young or newer skydivers, one thing that comes up over and over again is, hey, nobody will jump with me. So I'm going to go do this you know, dive that might not be great for my skill level, but I can do it alone. So that's what I'm going to do. And I think having that experience and coming from a drop zone where people were just very open and very welcoming and interested in mentoring new skydivers, like that kind of left a mark. And that has kind of made me feel the same way towards newer jumpers. So currently I spend a lot of my time jumping with people who have very low jump numbers, who are new in the sport and trying to pass on um, what I was taught. And I think it's just really important to have that mentality of we're here to learn, we're here to teach other people and not just here to get as good as we possibly can or not just here to spend a lot of money or, or whatever the alternative could be. Like I think teaching teaching and learning and having that mindset is just very important. So yeah, my, my skydiving mentors were all retirees from, from Pensacola, Florida. <laughs> I love that focus that you're saying for yourself on sort of taking the responsibility to help folks who are more junior than you. I think that's something that we, I know that I could do more of in, in every arena, right? It's that um, the sort of lift while you climb quote idea, right? That, yeah, yeah, being able to, to give back to that. I think that's great. Um, man, I could talk to you about skydiving forever. I feel like I have so many questions um, <laughs> that, but eventually, eventually we will move on. But my, I guess, uh, two, two last skydiving related questions. So I am a runner. I know you have a running background as well. And so when I think of a sport or, you know, proficiency or mastery training, like it makes sense to me in terms of running, right? That you're doing the harder workouts and increasing mileages and that there are form drills and things that you can do. But what is the training or improvement process look like in a sport like skydiving? Okay. Um, it really depends on what type of skydiver you are. I think like on television, you know, we think of like Keanu Reeves or Patrick Swayze and um, Point Break, you know, there's that type of skydiving. But really the community is broken up into a lot of different um, disciplines. So you have relative work, formation skydiving, um, which is what you see on the motivational posters where you have like a group of 50 people or 100 people and they're all linked and holding hands in the sky. So there's that type of skydiving. You have wingsuiters, which are wearing like the squirrel suits that sometimes you see on YouTube or Vimeo. And that's a completely different discipline, right? Because their idea, um, like their learning curve is to try to spend, to increase their glide. So to spend as much time in the air as possible. Um, you have free flyers who are flying in different configurations. It might be on their head. It might be what we call head up flying, um, which could be in a stand position, could be in a seated position. It could be freestyle or any type of um, configuration in between. Um, you also have crew dogs, which are what we call um, canopy relative work pilots. And when they come out of an airplane, instead of experiencing free fall, they deploy their canopy relatively early. And then they stack up in formations that may be two people tall, or it could be 10 people tall in like a diamond formation or something similar. So you really have different types of skydiving. You also have um, what we call canopy pilots or swoopers, 
same thing. They deploy their canopy relatively early out of the aircraft and they practice maybe 180 or 360 or 720 turns, which build up speed. And then they'll come in and maybe glide along a pond um, going 70 miles per hour, which is really cool. So we have a lot of different types of skydiving. And within each discipline, there are different paths you can take to improve and to progress as a skydiver. Um, we also have like a rating system, which is based upon the number of jumps you have and how well you're able to control um, your canopy. And that goes from A to uh, D license. And then there's also a pro rating you can get. So there are a lot of different ways to progress in the sport. Um, the way I've chosen is to focus on relative work formation skydiving. And then I've also done a little bit of free flying. So that goes back to flying on my, on my head in head, head down configuration or also flying like in a, a seated position um, and trying to build pretty small formations for me because I'm still new at it. Um, but yeah, there are a lot of different ways you can go. We have camps, which are run by professionals. And that's another really cool thing about our sport. The people who um, are professional skydivers, you know them because the community is like that small. So you have great access to your heroes and to your heroines in the sport. And that's something I like. I really admire about skydiving. Um, there are also like record jumps. You may get invited to participate in a record jump. And then wind tunnels are another really big part of our sport. And the cool thing is like they're open to the public. And if you're not really sure like how you would like skydiving or you might not like skydiving, it's a great way to try it. So look up uh, iFly wind tunnel um, and you might have one near you or maybe a, a state or city away. And it's a great way to, uh, to experience what uh, flight would be like. You're blowing my mind. So the, my my little perception of jump out of plane, that's skydiving. No, that was amazing. <laughs> yeah, there's so, <laughs> many, so many things. So I, then I'm curious for you personally, um, with your treatment, with your illness, have you still been able to dive? How has that sort of interrupted or not your you know ability to do your sport? Yeah, good question. Um, currently, I'm not diving. I just had hip surgery and I probably won't be diving for a while. Um but up until recently, I was diving, and that was like as I was still trying to get a diagnosis, um, I was skydiving, and that meant skydiving with a walker, which is kind of like you don't really see that every day. Um, but one thing that encouraged me is skydiving is like a pretty um, pretty accessible sport, and you know you meet guys and gals who are paraplegics and they're in their wheelchair all the time, but they also skydive. And that kind of like motivated me. Okay. Like, yeah, your life is not great right now. And you're dealing with a lot of pain and illness, but try to keep doing it for as long as you can. And I did. And that really helped. I don't even know, like, I don't think I can possibly overestimate how much it helped. Um, just having that experience of not feeling like a full-time patient because Here's something I can still do. I can't run. I can't really walk, but I can skydive and my friends are pretty awesome. So they're going to help me get back to the hangar. Like that was, that was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I do like that part of my sport. Like it's really disability friendly. Um, the last conference that I was at, which had a focus on outdoor recreation and conservation, um, someone came up to me after one of the panels and um, she told me like, hey, my, my son is a skydiver and he's blind. And wow, like that was just really motivating me. And she really appreciated like the fact that 
here I was introducing myself as a disabled skydiver and showing people that, you know, disability isn't necessarily a limitation. It's something where I can still do a sport that I love. And, um, yeah, I guess just having that connection and her son being the same way was, was really cool and was really motivating. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Also, I just, I mean, again, uh, this sort of goes without saying, I guess, but it's why I think it's so important for everyone to tell their story because I, I do think it's the – cultural perception, maybe I'm just speaking from like the media representation and stuff that I've seen, of when I think of skydiving, I think of really fit athletic white dudes. Yeah, right? for sure. And so it's, and obviously that's not the entirety of the sport. It's not the entirety of any activity. <laughs> and so hearing one story, this story, this other story to be like, oh, wait, okay. Just because that's maybe what I've seen on whatever action adventure videos, you know what I mean? Like that that's yeah. not the only, yeah. Um. So when I think of both the military, uh, obviously having no personal experience and adventure sports also having no personal experience. <laughs> I immediately think about mental toughness. I don't know if you think that's a fair sort of tie between the two, but I'm curious if you feel like that's a, a, a strength of yours or a quality that you've always had. Um, I think my parents would call it like stubbornness. Okay. Um, I don't know if they would like, Oh, you're mentally tough. Like, Nope, you just don't listen. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's a really good question. I think like the military definitely like it's like a selling point, right? Being physically and mentally tough is something we talk about a lot. Um, but I think it's it's important like how you package that um, as a character trait, right? Like no one is born mentally tough. I think it's something you develop, and I think it looks like different things to different people. Um, whether you're combating an illness or dealing with like personal setbacks or setbacks at work or financial setbacks or jumping out of airplanes, like toughness is involved in all of that. It just really depends on how the culture packages and then rebrands and sells us those traits. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I would describe myself as mentally tough, but I mean, it's come, it's come from like failure. It's come from struggling. It's come from being stubborn. It's come from, you know, like seeing seeing like your struggles and your failure and, and all that pay off. It's come from having that network. It's come from, you know, being mentored. It, it's not anything that I would describe as like innate. Um, but yeah, yeah, I would, mm-hmm. I would use that word. I like what you're saying about the different sort of packaging of mental toughness. Cause again, I think there's this idea of it being this really rough sort of aggressive toughness and yeah. that that isn't the only way that's not, the only type of strength, right? Like sure that that might be a type of mental strength or physical strength, but that there's lots of different ways to be mentally strong, to be resilient. And oftentimes that looks quieter. Sometimes it's softer and, you know, being able to sort of define for yourself, okay, what does that look like for me? Right. And then to your point, you, you know, build up that skill like anything else over time through practicing and being in situations of being resilient. Yeah. And I I like the way you describe that about how it can look differently. Um, I think we don't often focus on femininity, but I think that's definitely a component of mental toughness. I think women, you know, as women, we don't always get credit for it because the way our society packages mental toughness, it's got to be rugged and male, kind of like adventure sports, right? The rugged male conquers his pristine landscape or Everest or, you know, K2 or whatever environment that is just there for the purpose of his mental toughness. Like, and that's not really a reality. 
reality because there are so many people out here like trying to overcome situations or trying to learn from situations or just going through life. And, and you're right, you see mental toughness in so many different ways. And, and it's important because it goes back, like you said, to storytelling. Um, how do we tell a story of mental toughness and can we do it in a way that's different from the stories that have always been told? And like, that's a really, um, that's a really big part of melanin based camp and of what we're trying to do with the website and with Instagram um, is showing people these stories in a different way with different heroes, right? Sometimes it's good to, to step back and let another person take the stage, not because your story isn't important, but because there are other stories out there. Um, and, you know, if 37% of America is minority and minority stories aren't being told in relation to the outdoors, then, like, that's not really characteristic, right? There's some sort of disparity going on, and we want to address it in a way that's positive. Um, so we're not telling people, um, if you're that rugged white guy conquering the outdoors, we're not telling you not to tell your story, but we want to hear other stories as well. And that's kind of like what we're doing with um, the organization. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that's an awesome segue, because that's how I found you is through your work um, through Melanin Base Camp. Will you give a quick sort of introduction to folks about what that is and why you started it? Sure. Um, Okay, so to tell the story of Melanin Base Camp, I have to rewind really quick and tell you about Team Black Star. So Team Black Star is an organization of 240 skydivers in over six different countries, and we're mostly skydivers of color. And I co-founded that organization in 2014 with a couple friends, and it kind of started as a joke. Like we're, you know, six African-American skydivers uh, out of how no, I'm sorry, out of God knows how many, um, but we like skydiving. We have a lot of inside jokes, one of which is every time we show up at a drop zone, people think we're here for tandems, but we're not. You know, we have a lot of experience. What should we do? And we decided to um, do our, quote unquote, unofficial record jump out of out of uh, a drop zone in Georgia. And we decided to start um, the organization known as Team Black Star. So I did that in 2014. Um, then I went off to the Philippines for work, came back uh, around 2016, and I was just really curious about other people of color in the outdoor community that aren't skydivers. Like, what are they doing? Like, are there African-American kayakers? Are there, like, Asian-American hikers and um, base jumpers? And, like, what is everybody else doing? Like, I knew about my community, and I knew, you know, most, if not all of the people of color um, who are skydiving in the U.S. So, like, I knew my community, but I didn't know what the broader um, outdoor adventure sports community looked like. And I just had a lot of questions. And it turns out I had a lot of, um, I had a lot of misassumptions. I had a lot of uh, expectations which were completely wrong. So I started on Instagram. And um, I used, like, a brute force method. I just pulled up Instagram and I started searching for like Muslim hiker and Latino kayaker. And I spent hours and hours on Instagram trying to find people to build this community. And like slowly but surely I was finding people and it really challenged a lot of my assumptions. Um, and it kind of blew my mind. I found out about like surfing community in, uh, in Jamaica and in Senegal and, you know, hiking community in California. And I was just being introduced to a lot of these like sub communities that weren't particularly connected to one another, but were all doing incredible things. And, um, that was kind of a turning point for me. Um, I wanted to find a way to connect all of us if possible. And so I started Melanin Base Camp. Um, and I just started asking people, Hey, can you, can you tag your photos using our hashtag? 
And it's kind of funny now because I have this conversation a lot with my um, with my girlfriends. We talk about outdoor brands who, when you approach them about, hey, can you guys be more representative or could you please include more people of color and it's a win-win situation? Don't you want to broaden your consumer base? And oftentimes the response may be, well, we just can't find, you know, people of color who are doing these things in the backcountry. So that's why we don't post them. Or, you know, we don't know any African-American climbers. That's why we're not representing them. And I'm like, Bullshit. <laughs> and I can <laughs> yeah. say that I can say that because I've done the work and I'm like, I did that work on my own. You could you could hire a 20-something intern and they could do that work. Like you just have to do the work. And if you know your excuse can't be, well, they're not using our hashtag. When I started, nobody was using my using my hashtag. Um, cause I was new and, you know, you, you ask people, you have that dialogue, you have to be intentional about what you're doing. And if you want to be inclusive, you'll be intentional about being inclusive. And if you don't value that, then you probably won't. And I think like, that's the biggest distinction. Um, so yeah, like that's how I built Melon Base Camp. It was entirely through Instagram. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's another thing I like to mention to people. I know, um, maybe there's kind of, a perspective where social media doesn't have value and we're spending way too much time on our phones and it's dividing the country. I know that's one perspective, but I know from my own perspective and from how I use social media, I think it's great. Like it's been this completely egalitarian tool where a 20 something or 30 something from North Carolina can pick it up and can find this community that exists all over the world that I would never hear about otherwise because you don't see African-American hikers in the major big brand magazines or in the glossy advertisements or, you know, in the nationally televised ads, you, we're not there. Um, but we are on social media. So for me, it's been an amazing, um, completely egalitarian tool where you can be a nobody and you can do really cool things with Instagram or with Twitter or with Facebook. Like mm-hmm. it's how we connect. It's how people who aren't represented elsewhere how we find each other and you know what it's not just people of color in outdoor sports because let me tell you me with all of my like strange medical things going on and getting rheumatic fever guess who I've connected with women and you know children who have had rheumatic fever at some point in their lives like I'm in so many rheumatic fever support groups online it's ridiculous Mm -hmm. so I wouldn't have had that connection through my hospital because it's a very very rare rare illness and I'm not trying to compare people of color to rare illnesses because we're not but for some reason we're not represented in mainstream media um, but we're definitely present online so I love I love that part or that aspect of um of Instagram. I can like sing its phrases all yeah. day long, but I'll shut up. No, no, no. I, I, I think you're 100% right. And I wanted to go back to something that you said before when you started doing the research into, you know, other adventure sport athletes communities. You said, um, you mentioned a couple times that it sort of shattered your thoughts or misconceptions, or I, I think you used the word assumptions. Can you give some specific examples of assumptions that you had that then were proved incorrect? Sure. Um, yeah, I was, I was pretty ignorant. Like I just didn't know we were out there doing the things that we do. Like I assumed that, you know, this stereotype that black people don't swim. I don't really swim. I don't 
really know how I made it to the Army because I barely made it past my swim test. But yeah, I'm a non-swimmer. But just because I don't swim doesn't mean that black people don't swim. doesn't mean that black people don't kayak. Um, it doesn't mean that Asian women don't fly wingsuits. Um, it doesn't mean that, you know, Latino men don't uh, base jump. They do. Like, we do all of these things. Um, but it's, yeah, it's it's just, it's really easy to have incorrect assumptions because because of that lack of representation and because the stories that we're telling ourselves about the outdoors. And again, it's, it's important to tell ourselves stories because that's like how we communicate. That's how we have shared culture. Like that's a very good thing. I'm not saying that's bad, but the stories that America tells herself about the outdoors are very limited to one type of person, which is again, like the rugged white male, like women are just starting to enter that conversation, even though obviously women writ large have been involved in the outdoors in some way, shape or form, you know, since time immemorial, like it's not a new thing. It's not like women are just now starting to, to hike or trail run or, or, you know, climb. Um, but it's that we're not like, we're not a part of that bigger narrative. Um, so yeah, I'm sorry. I forgot the question. No, no, no. That, I mean, that's everything you just said. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> that's that's fine. Um, the question was about assumptions that you had, which you answered totally. Um, yeah. What would you love to see more of from the mainstream outdoors community? Wow. Yeah. Um, a couple things. I would definitely like to see um, representation, but not just in media. I would like to see better representation um, in the boardroom. And I think I'm going to steal this quote, but like, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And I think if we're not represented in the boardroom, in senior management, um, at the like senior exec level for a lot of these outdoor brands, then you're going to see, you're going to see advertising campaigns that just don't resonate or that offend people. Like you're not going to see advertising campaigns that are inclusive of all people. Mm-hmm. And again, like if, if, American consumers are 37% minority and we're soon to be a majority, I'm sorry, we are soon to be a minority majority country. It just makes sense for your bottom line to be inclusive at every level, starting from the ads that you're using um, up through your brand ambassadorships, right? Your brand ambassador should reflect your consumers. And if I'm scrolling through the website for a major brand, I'm not calling anybody out, but if I'm scrolling through the webpage for a major brand and none of your brand ambassadors, not one look like me as a black woman in America in 2017. Right. Like I'm scratching my head trying to figure that one out. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really easy fix. And again, we shouldn't fall back to the same excuses time after time, which are, well, we don't know any athletes of color. Well, you do. And if you don't, I have no problem making that introduction. Um, But it's not just me. There are a lot of other people working in the same line of work who, I'm sorry, doing the same line of work who can facilitate those introductions. You just have to be intentional about it. You have to want to make changes. Um, But yeah, all the way up through through senior management, you have to, uh, you need to see a shift in who's at the table. And I think that will help begin to change the culture and a lot of these old antiquated mental models. I think that will help to, to see that shift as we move forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Something else when um, we were emailing before recording, you know, potential topics to talk about. And one of the things you said th- with no context, just the question on its own, which I would love to get into, you posed the question, is nature free? 
And I, I assume that had some was in the context of, you know, sort of the obstacles that maybe limit people's access to the outdoors. I don't know, but I would love to hear, you know, what you meant when you posed that question. Yeah. Okay. Um, Huh. Wow. You could ask a similar question, which is, is nature political? And I think that's something that really resonates with people because it's been in the news a lot with Bears Ears um, and with Bears Ears and uh, Gran Escalante being reduced in size um, just this week. But is nature free? A lot of the time when I'm introducing the topic of race or gender uh, into the outdoors, whether talking with climbers or skydivers, um, some of the feedback um, is negative, right? People want to know, like, why are you bringing race and gender into this? Why are you always talking about race? Race has nothing to do with nature. Nature is free, right? Nature isn't one color or another. And I think that's like kind of an easy, um, it's like a knee-jerk reaction for people, and it's kind of an easy path to go down. Um, But I think, I think it's completely wrong. Like, nature isn't free, just like nature um, is political. And part of that ties to access, right? Um, the community in question historically hasn't had access to XYZ National Park or to the swimming area, or historically were they denied access due to the color of their skin? Like that's one good question to ask, right? Well, your response may be, well, they can access the park now. What's the big deal? Okay. Well, to access a national park, um, say you live an hour away, you're going to need a car because most city buses don't go to national parks, right? We, the message over and over again to America's poor, um, because, you know, they're whatever correlation with um, being poor, or being obese or being whatever, not having access to the outdoors is you need to get outside more. Um, you need to do this more. You need to do that more. You need to travel more. Like we're always telling poor people what to do. We're always telling working class folks what to do. But city buses don't go to national parks. To get to a national park, you're going to need a car. You're going to need to be able to put gas in that car. You're going to need time off from work, whether that's paid leave or otherwise. You're going to need childcare um, to be able to, uh, you know, say you have little ones who range in age. You're going to need some type of childcare to be able to get to that national park. There are a lot of things you need that go into the equation that people don't realize. Um, and then you have to pay the park fee, which, by the way, park fees are going up um, at. What, what is called like America's um, MPS, like jewels. So certain park fees will go up to, I believe, $75 in the next year or so. Um, so that's another obstacle. Can you pay park fee? Well, people will say, well, why don't they just get the, the, the year or annual pass for the park? Okay, well, you're going to need money to pay for that. Um, and then there are intangibles that have nothing to do with money, which is whether you as a person of color feel like you have access to that space. Is it an all white space where you might be the only person of color and might feel uncomfortable? Um, Like those are little things that go into it. Um, So like, I want people to just think broader, like think big picture. Don't assume that nature is free. Um, This came up recently in a post that we did about, um, about REI's opt outside campaign. Yeah. I wanted you to talk about that. I, I, that like, and I mean, I'm just going to say this because I think it's good to admit that blew my mind. I had never really thought about what you, your perspective that you shared in that post was a, a new perspective for me. It's something that I hadn't really thought of. And I was like, yep, this is, the th- we need to just continue to be challenged on, I don't know. Anyway, so can you just kind of talk about, first of all, what REI's Opt Outside campaign is and then what your post was about and we can talk about it? Sure. Um, 
So the campaign, I believe, started um, as an incentive to get REI employees, all 12,000 of their employees, um, to spend the day after Thanksgiving, Black Friday, with their families. So it was a great initiative. REI gave paid leave to all of their employees to spend that time with their families. Um, And it's really grown from that to a viral social media campaign to get people out of the stores on Black Friday and onto the trails. Um, And like, that's kind of like the course that has taken. And um, I just found that to be pretty problematic And not that REI isn't trying to do a good thing. They are. And I think you can have good intentions all day long, but that doesn't make your campaign necessarily inclusive. And I I really felt like, or I feel like that campaign as is um, really discounts working class Americans who aren't privileged, who don't have expensive gear to go and post selfies of themselves, you know, in a national park on Black Friday because they got paid leave from their employer. It really discounts regular Americans who are working on Black Friday because maybe they are relying on extended holiday hours to be financially stable, right? Because a lot of people rely on that overtime. So it, yeah, it doesn't even consider people who are working on Black Friday, but it makes assumptions, which I don't think are necessarily correct, about folks who are um, shopping on Black Friday, whether they're trying to take advantage of Black Friday Friday sales or just shopping because they want to. A, you know, people should, I don't know, that's my take on it. People should shop if they want to or they should go hike if they want to. Like, I wouldn't feel comfortable telling regular people what to do with their money on any given day. Um, but I think like growing up, like, like I know my family used Black Friday sales to buy Christmas presents. And I know a lot of families are like mine. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, whether you, you, wouldn't be able to buy them without Black Friday sales or whether you're just taking advantage of Black Friday sales. Like there's nothing wrong with, you know, with shopping on Black Friday. And like, that's what I was trying to emphasize. And like the other half of it was this whole concept of opting outside. Like, what does that mean exactly? And like, how does that apply to people who don't have access to green spaces within their immediate neighborhood? Or how does that apply to people who don't live in safe neighborhoods? Like, where exactly are they supposed to be opting outside? Mm -hmm. I really feel like, um, I don't know, it doesn't pass, like, the common sense check for every American. And that was my point. Because if you live in a really nice neighborhood and you're 10 minutes away from a green space or a park or trail, like, that's great. And I'm not saying, like, you should feel bad because you definitely should not. Um, But I think we should be cognizant of the fact that Americans live different financial realities. That's just the truth. And if we want to make a campaign that really applies to all Americans, like then make a campaign that applies to all Americans. I I definitely feel like the opt outside campaign as is, it doesn't. Um, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I mean, this this itself could be a 20 hour conversation, right? Like, I know that we're not going to get into all the, you know, nuances and specifics of it. But for me, what really caught my attention about your post was, and of course, this is coming from like having extreme privilege blinders on, and I'm very aware of that. And your, you know, privilege gets shifted as you read more things and, you know, see more things. But that this, this idea, because it's really easy if you do have access to 
outdoor space, right, that you don't think twice about for all of the reasons that you said. You know, it's it's in your town. It feels safe for you to go there. You have the time off work. You have a car to get there. All the things that you spoke to are things that are true for me and for the place that I live. It's really easy to see something like, you know, the opt outside campaign as this positive, like, yeah, choose being, you know, outside in nature over the sort of consumerist culture of Black Friday. And I think there's some being on a moral high horse that it's very easy to do about that, right? That, oh, you know, I'm better because I'm posting this selfie outside and I'm not, you know, sucked into this capitalist consumer culture, right? I think it's easy to make yourself, I don't know, feel good about that and that you're a post of, okay, what if the discount that's happening at this time is the only way that this, you know, this person can afford this thing or this, you know, that it's an unbelievable privilege to be able to ignore sales, right? And I know that wasn't your whole post, but that definitely stopped me to be like, hmm, yeah, okay, wasn't thinking that way. And then this idea of, you know, uh, this, this I feel like is coming up a lot in the hiking community too of, you know, can't we just like keep this a non-political space, right? I come here for escaping <laughs> and to not talk about politics. I had some, I had a woman unfollow me on Instagram and left that as a comment that, you know, I, I came here for the hiking pictures, but, you know, this is hiking is something I do to get away from politics and like it doesn't have to be political. And I'm like, it's literally couldn't be more political because of every public lands, right? Like environmental mm-hmm. crisis, who has access, everything that you thought of, you know, like it's, the, yeah. I don't know. I, I have so many thoughts and feelings about this and I love learning from you and the work that you do in this arena. Thanks. Yeah, I think definitely on the same, um, I guess, wavelength as you. And yeah, it's been important for me to realize because I'll be the first person to like, oh, let me post a picture of me in Shenandoah National Park in this like expensive puffy jacket. And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) What am I preaching exactly? Like, what am I trying to tell people? Because again, that feeds back into the narrative of what we tell ourselves about the outdoors that, you know, to be an outdoorsman or outdoor woman, you have to look a certain way. You have to buy all this gear and you have to have 20 different jackets. Well, that's an exaggeration, but you have to have all these expensive jackets and the expensive technical sleeping bag and the trekking poles and all of this. And you know what, if you use that again, I'm not trying to shame anyone for having gear because I have gear myself. And as a skydiver, I'd be the last person to try to shame people because our gear is like very expensive and very inaccessible to a lot of people. But um, we really have to be cognizant about the the stories that we're telling. And uh, at the very least, make sure that we're being inclusive of of other people, people as well, who might not fit that narrative, because if you're not, then what are you telling them? You're telling them that they don't belong in the outdoors. Even if you think, well, I never consciously went to someone and told them, Hey, you don't belong here. You're still telling them that through the stories that you're leaving out versus the stories that you're including. Um, so yeah, like that's kind of a big thing. Yeah. I, I love that differentiation between the stories you're telling and then the stories that you're leaving out because right. It's not, don't buy a good sleeping bag, right? That's certainly not what you're saying. It's mm-hmm. I've, I've been thinking about this for myself too, just in terms of, again, this idea of just telling the truth about how you got where you are. I thought about this a lot. I took six weeks off to hike the Arizona Trail and you know was posting about it on Instagram. And one of the things I thought about a lot was that, of course, yeah, you don't have to have really expensive gear. You don't have to, you know, it's not that that's the only way that it can look, but also it's an insane privilege, first of all, to have the flexibility that I only work part-time and that I work for myself so that I can yeah. take that time off, like that in and of itself, right? And sure, there's vulnerabilities of being you know, a woman alone out there. But other than that, you know, I'm, there's so, what am I trying to say? Like, 
I bought a really expensive tent sort of last minute and it wasn't on sale and that lightened my load, which made it easier on my body. Like that's a, that's a huge privilege. And I think just not talking about that, it's not, what am I trying? I'm not being very articulate, but I think it's, it's like not, don't do it. Like you said, it's not, don't have the nice jacket and go to Shenandoah National Park and post a picture. <laughs> it's just being able to have these conversations. So first of all, you don't need this thing in order to do it. And yeah. also it's basically getting away from the like, sort of telling the story that, well, this is for everything and like something's wrong with you if you can't just like make this work, right? That like the, let's like post a photo of a yoga pose on a rock uh, with the like, just follow your dreams. Okay, well, it's not that easy, right? It's not like everyone can just like quit their life and like go hike for six months. Yeah, for sure. I don't know if that makes any sense, but. No, it definitely does. That definitely makes sense to me. And, And again, like as a caveat, I'm not saying don't inspire people because maybe doing a yoga pose on a mountain somewhere will inspire people. And I'm sure it does. But again, like it goes back to the stories that we're leaving out and the stories we're not telling. And I think it's good to be aware of that. And you may, if someone is hearing this, they may go back and make zero changes in what they're doing in their approach. That's fine. But just be cognizant of, of what we're doing. And let's not pretend or let's not tell ourselves that nature isn't political or let's not say that, you know, nature is accessible to everyone when it's not like it's really important to be aware to have that self-awareness of what we're doing um even if we don't want to make any changes to to how we're approaching nature just be aware mm-hmm. i agree with you yeah i mean it's certainly not my place or anyone's place to tell anyone like how to live their life right and yeah. uh, i just i find myself more and more interested in just people telling the truth about how they made a certain situation work or happen, right? That like, I think about this in terms of business too, that, you know, for me with this podcast, having done this for a little over two years, having it be crowd fund, like listener funded, as opposed to doing advertisers, that was, and growing it slowly, that was a choice that I was able to make because my partner makes a lot more money than I do. And that's the kind of thing that people don't want to talk about. It's not that that's the only way that you can make something work, but money has to come from somewhere. It's a credit card. It's, you know, having a a partner that makes good money. It's, you know, working extra jobs on the side. It's, you know, an inheritance. It comes from somewhere. And I, I, all I'm interested in is people being honest about that. Like, how did you acquire this piece of gear? How did you take the time off? How did you make this happen? I don't know. I just wish that people were more honest about their own, how they got there. I think that that's helpful. Yeah, I think so too. Um, whew, we just talked about a lot of things. I love it. <laughs> um, so you mentioned this idea of representation a couple times, which has come up for sure in other episodes of the podcast. Do you remember the first time that you felt really represented in pop culture? Huh. Um, the only thing that comes to mind, there's a lot, right? But the thing that comes to mind immediately when you ask that question, um, I don't remember the author, but it's a book called Snowy Day. Maybe you can help me on this. It's a children's book and I'm looking it up right now. Uh, Let me think. And the book is about like a little African-American boy um, on his first snow day. So like that, like that's the book that comes to mind. And uh, yeah, here it is. Okay. Snowy Day by Ezra Jack Keats. And it was published in 1962. It's a children's picture book. And um, that's something that like my parents read to me when I was a little kid. So like they did a great job, I would say, of like filling our house with um, African-American role models, um, whether through literature or through like we had like this like African-American um, Black History Month 
a little series of pamphlets and we would like go through that and read about like Benjamin Banneker and, you know, all of these different um, leaders within the African-American community. But I don't know. When you asked me that question, that that little picture book came to mind. I love that. Well, I feel like the the, the right answer is oftentimes the first answer, right? Whatever pops into your head. Yeah, <laughs> love that. For sure. Um, circling back a little bit to uh, Melanin Basecamp and the community and the different athletes that you feature and have featured, um, tell me about an athlete. Uh, that you've you know spotlighted who you feel like has really inspired you i'm sure there are many but is there one that comes to mind straight away um um my silence isn't because i can't think of anyone it's because i'm trying to like narrow down my (laughs) my choices because there are a lot of really really good athletes that come to mind um Hmm. Well, okay. I've got to tell you about our bloggers. So I, I can't like start this conversation without telling you about our bloggers. Um, there are eight total and um, they blog about their different experiences, whether in kayaking or hiking um, or climbing and then skydiving as well. And I, I think I want to talk about Nadia Mercado. So she is a skydiver that I've known for a couple years. And I, I did ask her to come on as a blogger for Melanin Base Camp. But she also recently got into climbing and into hiking. And I would say, like, Nadia is definitely someone who inspires me because, um, like, she learns as much from failure as she does from being successful. And oftentimes, like, the stories we want to focus on are the stories where we really excelled at something or we looked really good. And I love how, like, I can have really honest, refreshing conversations with Nadia um, as she talks about, like, you know, her fear of repelling and getting over that or maybe not getting over that and just kind of learning to live with it. Um, As she talks about, um, you know, developing and growing as a skydiver and um, getting over her fear of her fear over jumping and her fear of heights. Um, So, yeah, Nadia is definitely someone I I would want to. I would want to highlight. So she's 25. She's also a cardiac nurse and um, she lives in North Carolina as well. So yeah, she's definitely an inspiring person and definitely a role model as an adventure athlete. And I like to call her a triple threat because she climbs, she does a lot of um, long distance hiking and she, she skydives. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, I have found some really great people to follow through. Like every time you're yeah, basically every person you post, I'm like, ooh, who is this? What are they doing? <laughs> I've gone so far down the rabbit hole. So good. It's good. Yeah, it's it's yeah. just I mean, and I will tell you many of those sports I have no interest in. So it's like even yeah. more sort of like voyeuristically fun to see people doing things that I have, <laughs> you know, I have no desire to do this outdoor rock climbing. I have no desire to do any of that. But to see other folks doing really badass things outside is really awesome. Yeah. So we've covered a lot for sure. Um, Before we start to wrap up, is there anything else sort of along the topic of diversifying the outdoors or really, I mean, anything at all that we haven't touched on that you want to talk about? Yeah, um, I want to go back real quick to the idea of mentoring and kind of building your network and building a community. Um, It's something like I've been trying to do recently. And um, after a conference I went to in Wyoming and getting or having the opportunity to meet Jenny Brusso from Unlikely Hikers and Ambreen from Brown People Camping and Shelma June from um, Hey Flash Foxy, like that was just a tremendous kind of like turning point for me where I realized I more and more don't want to be working kind of 
separately on my own. I want to be working and collaborating with other people. Um, so that was like really kind of like a great, a great moment to meet so many of my heroes and heroines online who are doing similar work with diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, um, from that, like we have a new concept that we're working on, so I wanted to share it with you before it actually goes live. But we're working on a website called diversifyoutdoors.com, and it's going to be kind of a home base for all of the different diversity, equity, inclusion in the outdoors organizations, whether they're nonprofits or businesses like uh, Len Nessifer's um, Natives Outdoors or um, whatever they are, whether it's a sport club or something more formal. And I'm really excited to announce this because I feel like it's going to be a great resource for for people who are in that community, as well as for outdoor industry, um, whether you're looking for uh, an employment opportunity or an internship, or whether you're trying to learn more about um, Latino outdoors or learn more about outdoor Asian. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be launching at the end of January, and hopefully it's something that your readers will be, I'm sorry, your listeners will be able to take a look at and learn from. That's awesome. I'm so excited to hear. I mean, obviously, we're not on video, but I'm like, yay, yay. I'm like doing a little. I'm so excited. <laughs> um, okay. So, uh, obviously, you know, when that goes up for sure, I can't wait to check it out. I'm curious. Let's say for folks who are really interested in this movement, mis- mission, message, however you want to um, classify it, and are thinking, how can I get more involved in this? Or how could I help diversify the outdoors? Um, what do you want to say to those folks? Oh, great question. Um, first of all, like you don't have to be a person of color to care about diversifying the outdoors. You don't, you know, have to have uh, marginalized gender identity or any of that. You can just be an ally, and we need allies. Everyone needs allies, and we're no different. And one way you can help out is by amplifying our voices, by sharing websites, um, by pointing people in the right direction, maybe um, sharing information on social media. A lot of times, like campaigns will kind of go around, right? They'll spread in a way that's like viral on social media, um, whether it's something um, that I'm in particular working on or maybe something like Natives Outdoors is working on recently with the Protect Bears Ears mission. Um, so you can repost, you can share something on uh, Facebook or on Instagram or on Twitter. Um, you can point friends or neighbors um, who may fall under that demographic. Maybe you know someone who's a woman of color who is really into adventure sports. Well, we're doing a... Um, we're working on an, a film project, um, myself and Bethany Lebowitz from Brown Girls Climb. So you could repost our ad on that, or you could let your friend know that's an opportunity she might be interested in. So I'm really big on on sharing, on reposting, on finding ways to amplify voices of people who aren't often heard. Now, if you work in the business world or if you work in outdoor industry, it's just another or a different opportunity, um, whether taking a serious look at your brand's ambassadors and, and thinking and brainstorming ways, how can we diversify? How can we bring in new talent um, that may not have this opportunity otherwise? Like there are just many different ways to approach this. So I want people to feel encouraged and people to uh, to just know that we need them. We need everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I love all of those because they're very specific, tangible actions that aren't overwhelming. Sometimes I think that it's easy to make the excuse of, well, I don't know what to do. And it all seems so big, right? Okay. The, your point of, you know, amplifying the message, you know, retweeting something like things that seem simple, you know, it does draw new eyes. I mean, I think of 
basically other than good friends or yeah, basically other than good friends, everyone who's been on this podcast has come through like some internet rabbit hole, right? Like that I found <laughs> you because, well, yeah, let me backtrack. I found Jenny Brusso of Unlikely Hikers through my friend, Carrot Quinn. And then she was on the podcast and it was through following Unlikely Hikers that I found you, right? That it's like, that that's what happens. And then the athletes yeah. that you feature now, okay, maybe some of them will wind up being a guest on the show. And then maybe someone will listen to this show and think, oh, I work for REI or I did, let me reach out to the, you know, that it's, yeah, anyway, that I like the sort of, <laughs> that's how things happen. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And as far as action steps go, I want to go back quickly to what you, something that you said before that might seem small, but that I don't think is when you were talking about the importance of just awareness and storytelling, whether that means you keep posting the same pictures on Instagram or not. Like I'm thinking for myself, it's just being aware of what is the story that you're telling. And, you know, like just being aware, I think there's awareness is really yeah. helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a good place to start to wrap up the way that we end these episodes are with, uh, seven rapid fire questions, um, (laughs) questions that the Patreon community, the folks who fund the podcast, uh, want me to ask all of our eight guests this season. So seven questions, not at all related to anything we just talked about. If if you're down to answer that. Okay. I'm ready. Are you ready? The first one's really fun and it's my favorite. Um, if you could have a hot fling with one fictional character, who would you choose? (laughs) Tell me that's not the best question. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Oh, you should have prepared me. I would have done my research. It's hard to make a decision. Um, wow. Yeah. Maybe, uh, Luke Cage. Mm. Oh my God. (laughs) And if not him, Mr. Darcy, definitely. He's a close like runner up. I love the the uh, polarizing options of your choices. <laughs> we can have a long other conversation about what is it about those two folks? Oh, that's amazing. Oh my God, Luke Cage. Um, okay, second question. What's something that you learned this year that changed the way you think either about yourself, the world, your community, just something you learned this year that um, caused a shift in perspective for you? Um, um, I learned about I learned a lot about indigenous communities. I learned about specifically the Bears Ears National Monument um, recently when I was in Wyoming for a conference. And that kind of, that really shifted my worldview because previously I was pretty ignorant. Like I just didn't really think about it. Um, And I thought I was being intersectional, but clearly if I was leaving out a large part of the population, which are, um, you know, the tribal sovereign nations, then I wasn't being intersectional. So that was, that was great. Like, yeah, that mm-hmm. would be the one thing. I have also, and again, it's through people like you and like Jenny, something that, that uh, Jenny started doing is um, in captions of photos, even talking about whose ancestral land, you know, like this idea of whose land are you hiking on, whose land are yeah. you adventuring on and uh, calling that out that, yeah, again, for me, it was also ignorance or I think if I would have thought about it really carefully. It's, it was one of those things that once I started thinking about it, I thought, wow, why haven't I been thinking about this? Right. It seems so obvious and yet is so often overlooked. Yeah. And just to, um, follow up with that native women's wilderness on Instagram and indigenous geotags are also, um, 
yeah, they're doing the same line of work with um, specifically identifying um, different tribal land and different tribal ancestral land. Um, and I think that's great. So I'm really excited about the work that all three of those accounts are doing, mm-hmm. including Unlikely Hikers. Yeah, I just started following the Native Women's Wilderness. So yeah, agreed. Shout outs. I'll put links to all this stuff in the show notes too. Um, what's something that didn't go as expected for you this year? Huh. Um, hmm, a lot. <laughs> Let me think of one thing. What did not go as expected? Um, I think I ended up moving to, going back to the weird medical stuff, I ended up mo- moving to Maryland and I was not expecting that. I thought that I would be here temporarily to get um, treatment, like I do infusions for my movement disorder. And I thought I would go home to North Carolina, which like that's home for me. I have family there. Um, I have a really adorable nephew there. And like that's been kind of uh, interesting. It's been a little bit tough being away from family. So that's like the one major thing that did Mm -hmm. not quite go according to plan. Mm Mm-hmm. Tell me about a time where you feel like you really pushed your own limits, where maybe you didn't believe something was possible and you did it and totally impressed yourself. Hmm. Totally impressed myself. Um, I think we kind of talked about this a little before, but, um, huh, actually we didn't. I'm going to choose going to this conference most recently that I went to in Wyoming. And I've mentioned it so many times, I may as well mention it by name. It's called SHIFT, and the focus is on outdoor recreation and conservation. And um, this year they made the business case for conservation. And I was not, like, I didn't think I would go because um, I had surgery coming up. I was in a walker. Um, I was in the middle of a flare for my movement disorder, meaning I was really unintelligible. Like my speech, you just couldn't understand what I was saying. Um, And I was just really embarrassed to be around other people. When I have a a flare, generally, like I don't go out a lot in public, Um, but I did it. And I couldn't do it without family support. Like I brought my family along. And for me, that was like a really big thing as a disabled person, as someone who has a chronic condition um, like that, that was like a goal. So Mm -hmm. I'm really happy that I was able to make it. Yeah. What's something that you plan to do less of next year? Huh. I plan to do fewer medical appointments. Yes. Love <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. Actually, this is kind of a big one. So next year I will probably be out of the army. I didn't mention, but, um, by next winter I will be out of the army. So I will like be in major nostalgia mode. Cause I'll be missing like all the little traditions and things that kind of made the army special for me. And, um, it's also a big thing for me because I'm 31 years old and I've been in the army since I was a kid. I literally grew up on army bases. I'm third generation military. It's always been a part of my life. So that'll be a really interesting challenge for me. Yeah. Um, transitioning out of the military and like just kind of doing things differently. And it's not a negative thing. I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm a little like, you know, it's a little intimidating, but I'm still excited about it. And I, I'm looking forward to new challenges um, and hopefully continuing um, the work that I'm doing now within the outdoor community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that will be a huge transition. Wow. 
So the next question is about books, which two or three books, any type of book, any genre at all, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you find yourself recommending or rereading most often? Okay. The one that immediately comes to mind is called Life at These Speeds. And I cannot even remember the author. I'll look it up. It's fine. Okay. Yeah. So Life at These Speeds, it's a book that I read when I was um, a lot younger. And um, yeah, it's, it's kind of like a little bit of surrealism. It's about challenge. It's about overcoming tragedy. It's about grief. Um, but it doesn't present as that initially. So you kind of have to like dig through the layers and learn more about the characters to kind of get to what the book is all about. And I love that. I love that style of writing. Um, and on that note, Rapture of Canaan is another book that I love. It's kind of, it's very similar, but without the surrealism. Um, but yeah, it's about a young woman. So it's a coming of age story. But a lot of the themes are the same, like dealing with grief, dealing with tragedy, dealing with the unexpected and how do, how do we continue? How do we move on? Is that possible? And um, yeah, I definitely recommend it to your listeners. I have not heard of either of those. And I love when that happens when someone suggests books that are unfamiliar to me because I am a super obsessive reader. So I will add those to my list. That's exciting. Yay. Selfishly. Um, <laughs> so the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take, what would it be? Hmm. Um, let me think. I would say right now, um, the biggest call to action that I could recommend is going home and finding that neighbor or friend or someone you don't know that well and asking them what their story is. Maybe not like that directly because it could be weird, but inviting them out for coffee or for tea um, and spend time with them and get to know them. It's something that I had the opportunity to do while I was in Wyoming recently. And it really kind of resonated with me because we often don't take time to get to know people. And it's one thing to talk about political viewpoints or to talk about, you know, partisan issues or my side or, you know, your side or whatever side, you know, we're discussing, but it's, it's another thing to really get to know people and get to see where they're coming from. You know, why do they have this particular viewpoint? Well, maybe it's, you know, stems from an issue or something that deeply affected them when they were younger. Um, So I'm a big proponent of that. Just find a neighbor, find someone you don't know that well. Um, whether it's at your church or synagogue or mosque and or you know at the grocery store and and take time to get to know that person have a good conversation yeah I love that so what's the best place for people to find you and say hi online do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks I do you can find us on Instagram at melanin basecamp um, it's melanin like the word melanin and uh, basecamp all three are one word and you can also find us online at melaninbasecamp.com Awesome. I will put links to all of that and everything else we talked about in the show notes. Danielle, thank you so much. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. I definitely couldn't do this without you. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-funded show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Kara. Hi, Kara. Hi, Nicole. You ready to answer some rapid fire questions? Always and forever. All right. Starting with my favorite question, what are you totally obsessed with right now? 
Um, I am totally obsessed with my upcoming 2018 PCT hike and the notion that my boyfriend and I are going to fit our entire life into a trailer that is going to be driven north by our friends. And then um, we're going to relocate to Seattle. So it's like all of the myriad questions about what am I doing with my life? That's my obsession. Uh, That sounds incredible. (laughs) Clearly, I'm all about long distance hiking. What's one place in your current town where you live that you would really recommend people check out if they ever travel there? Do you have a favorite restaurant, coffee shop, bookstore, park, anything like that? Hmm, that is such a good question. Um, you know, what's like a, a favorite of mine is this little bench at the top of this trail called the Los Leones Trail. And it's like right outside of Santa Monica on the north side. And you climb up through these sort of overgrown trees. And it's kind of like this little tunnel, um, which sounds really romantic, but it's, it's slightly ugly because LA and our trees are kind of gray and not quite green, which sounds tragic, but it's true. And then anyway, you get up onto this like low little plateau and you can see all the way through the valley, through Los Angeles, all the way down to Palos Verdes and you can see the ocean and then you can see north into Malibu and you get this like really wonderful sort of like 270 degree view of basically the entire city. Mm, That sounds lovely. What's one thing that you've had to let go of or stop doing this year in order to move forward? I have been trying so hard this year has been like my goal to just not judge people when I see them which is like it's such a challenge to like and of course like I'm a woman so not of course but for me personally this has to do with a lot of like body image and self-confidence and I've just had to be like you see a person and you may think things about their body and it's like why would I say that about someone I wouldn't be like oh look at her green eyes am I right like no like things are just things let them be let them be like facts without judgment and that's been my kind of don't be a jerk goal. <laughs> yeah, facts without judgment. I like that. What's one decision in your past that had you chosen differently, you feel like would have led you down an entirely different path in your life? Mm, um, a totally different path down my life. Oh my God, probably like all of them, <laughs> honestly. But um, I, you know what one really big one was, I've never been a huge fan of LA and I moved here for my, I moved here for college and I stayed for my career. And so two or three years ago, I really, or no, probably even longer than that, I guess it would be five years ago now, because I have the memory of a goldfish. I almost left LA and I relocated to Seattle after I decided to leave the film industry, because it was the worst. And I was like, I hate this. And I could see far enough in the future that I was like, I didn't want that to be my career. And had I not done that, or had I done that, I would have not met my boyfriend, I not would have not met some amazing friends that I have, I wouldn't probably be doing the writing or the outdoors work that I do right now. I wouldn't have a career I have now. So yeah, something as simple as like, I'm over the city and I'm moving now versus five years, which would be the present. Uh, that would have changed like literally my entire life. Mm-hmm. Last question. What's one thing that you have recently been wishing that people are more open and honest about? I really wish that people, and I think it's like, I think it's a very American thing to like push all this like how can I best say this? I think it's, I don't want people to think that or put so much pressure on like your career is who you are. Yes. Like people are like, what do you do? And they don't mean like, what do you do for fun? They mean like, what do you do nine to five, five days a week? And it's just like, cause then I feel like it puts this weird pressure. Like if your career isn't your passion, then like you're somehow a failure or like I was laid off earlier this year and like being laid off at 29 was like a huge, like I was felt so humiliated and embarrassed, but like everyone I talked to was like, especially older mentors, they're like, I've been laid off like three times. And I was like, literally no one talks about this. And like, no one mentions like, Hey, you know, maybe you just go to a nine to five job 
and your passion is like on the side and like that's a valid way to live your life or like maybe your career isn't the center of your world and I wish more people would just be like, hey, you can do, like, you are more than your job. Mm, I love that so much. Uh, about a year ago, I started answering the question, you know, when people ask, what do you do? I'll ask, you mean for money, for fun, for fitness, outside? Like, I'll come back with something. And it's always so funny how it, like, throws people off guard. And they're like, uh, I don't know, all of it. And then the conversation winds up being way more interesting. Yeah, I went to a wedding last, I guess this July. And he was talking about this group. And they'd all met through an outdoors club. And they're friends with my boyfriend. And he was like, you know, the thing I love about you guys is that when people first meet your thing, or the question that you ask most is like, what's your thing? Not like, what is your job? And I was like, oh, that's like such a good, just to be like, what's your thing? Like what? Cause like, then it's like open to anything. Like maybe my thing is feminism or maybe my thing is writing, or maybe my thing is like crocheting star Wars characters. I don't know. Like, but it gives you more of an, op- or maybe your thing is your job and that's like totally valid too, but it gives you more of a freedom to be like, here's who I am as opposed to like, here's my well, here's what my resume says. Mm-hmm, totally. So you are a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making the podcast possible since you've made a small and powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season, for which I am very grateful. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show. Uh, yeah, I think the big one is as a fellow creative person, I feel like Sometimes creative work gets like, it should be done for free because it's quote unquote fun. And I'm like, but you get value out of it. So I should get reciprocal value out of it. And then also I love it and I want it to continue forever and ever. And you were like, hey folks, this costs money. And I was like, that's totally valid. Like I can pay for this. And also, you know, like I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm a podcast junkie and like they have ads and that's fine. That's how they've chosen to fund their things. But like you're paying for it one way or another. You're paying for it with your time and listening to ads or you're paying for it like more directly. And it's like, I can just exactly fund the things that I want to see in the world. So it was a great opportunity. Yeah. I love that. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, like being on an outro like this, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, seriously, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can, and no matter what, we're in this together. 